sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to Ask the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School in Northern Kentucky. Welcome to the Midweek Show, Ken. Thanks. It's great to be back. No, and it's always fun having you on a Wednesday show where we're going to go with listener mail. So we have had a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we call this mail, uh, but of course, I mean, none of you actually handwrite us letters. Although if you want to, I guess you could actually send us in handwritten letters. Um, you can, you know, maybe like cut letters out of magazines. No, wait, that would be what you're going to do if you're a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> I'm not giving you the question. And so, no, but, uh, but on this, this week episode, we are not going to be serial killers. Uh, we'll save that for Netflix and all of their exploitive series. Instead, we're going to take your all's questions uh, because you, because listeners, you guys have had some really really worthwhile questions uh, this week. And I always appreciate it when you ask. Uh, This past uh, week on the weekend show, Ken and I, we did a bonus show. And bonus shows, by the way, if you don't know, is one of the perks you have of being a supporter of the politics guys. And what Ken and I took a look at uh, was the recent falling apart of elections in Israel. And I want to start, Ken, with a question from Tyler, who kind of taking up on that theme. And he writes this. He says, look, I totally agree that what has historically happened to the Jewish people is horrendous. But why are so many liberals supportive of the idea of an ethnostate as the solution to their problems? The very idea should be anathyme to progressives. I won't support Israel until they give full citizens rights to Palestinians and include them in their government. If the only viable solution to stop the violence and give the Palestinians full citizen rights is a two-state solution, then political reality should trump our ideals. But I'm not so sure a two-state solution is ever going to happen, and I don't think we should be happy with the idea, even if it is the only viable solution." Wow, there's a lot to show on there. So, Ken, do you want to take on Tyler's question first? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an ethno state, right? Because the the um, Arabs who live inside uh, the 1947 boundaries have all the same political rights as the as as, as the Jews who live there, or anyone else who lives there. So, um, I think the question is really geared towards uh, citizenship or residency, residency in the occupied territories. And in that sense, Israel's policy isn't that different from the U.S. policy uh, towards um, Puerto Rico or, 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 or Saipan or Guam or any of those kind of places. People, people who live um, in U.S. territories similarly um, don't uh, um, have a lot of political rights, don't, don't get to vote, um, uh, things like that. So now there are some differences, of course. Um, people who live in U.S. territories do have the right to move into the 50 states and then can take up those rights by doing that. And uh, the, the Palestinians who live in the occupied territories can't do that. So it's, it's not identical to the, to the U.S. And, it's, and, I, and you know, it, is, it is definitely a, a problem um, that you've got populations living in the occupied territories who can't exercise full political rights while they live in those territories and who also can't 
move um, into other territories where they would be able to exercise such rights. So I don't want to. I don't want to defend that. I agree that's a problem, but I I, do, I don't think it's accurate to characterize it as an ethno state. So I mean, one of the things historically though is that at kind of the essence of basic law in Israel is that there is a supremacy given to. Uh, a concept of ethnicity. So do you think that is problematic or not problematic then? Maybe to maybe restate Tyler's question, Ken. Well, in the sense of um, immigration you're talking about. So for, mm-hmm. for, people, for people who live in other parts of the world, because Israel's a Jewish state, um, Jewish people can come there. Now, the, the notion of, of uh, what it means to be a Jewish person who can come there is it's a complex notion because it mixes um, uh, aspects of um, uh, uh, ethnicity and, and um, uh, ancestry um, with uh, aspects of um, theology. So people who convert to Judaism um, can can also make use of the right of return. So it's it's um, so it's not it's not limited only to people. It's not only based on ethnicity or ancestry. Um, although there's been a lot of disputes in Israel about. Uh, who counts as a convert for purposes of the law of return. And, um, you know, we, we talked on Saturday's show about uh, the current um, uh, failure of Israel to form a government and some of the religious parties. The religious that parties, was on the bonus show, by the on way. Bonus show, on the bonus yeah. show, yeah. The religious parties have been very adamant about only accepting uh, Orthodox conversions and not accepting um, conversions in other branches of Judaism. So reform conversions or conservative conversions. Um, so the, so the, 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 there's theological issues tied in there. But, um, but ultimately, um, yeah, Israel doesn't have separation of church and state. Um, it is a Jewish state. Um, mm-hmm. it, does have, it does have freedom of religion. Um, and again, if you're talking about um, people who live within the 1947 borders, and that is about you know, 20% of the population in that area, um, you've got a lot of uh, Arabs, including Christian Arabs and Muslim Arabs who live there, who have full political rights, who have full uh, religious freedom. Many of them are members of um, the Israeli Knesset. Um, so there's there's Arab uh, members of parliament. So it's not it's not an ethno state in the sense that uh, was being discussed, although it is a Jewish state. Um, but there, there are certainly other states in the world that don't have separation of church and state as well. So what about the second part of Tyler's question? Uh, and this is the one where I might have uh, more input. And that is, he's kind of seemingly trying to say, well, should we support a two-state solution? Should we not support a two-state solution? Is this even something worth thinking about uh, as he talks about what he says, political reality? No, I, I support a two-state solution. And uh, it's actually... One of the reasons I never um, liked Netanyahu, and again, we did talk about him on Saturday's show, was that I, I, I really did not think it was helpful or constructive the way he would sort of permanently, uh, you know, rhetorically main, act as if he was open to a two-state solution while constantly trying to change the facts on the ground to make it less and less realistic and less and less possible and slowballing things. And, I, you know, I, I think a bona fide uh, two-state solution um, is the correct resolution. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Um, what what may be impossible is is a, a mutually agreed upon disposition for the city of Jerusalem. Um, you know that may be impossible, but um, but I think what's not impossible would be um, for um, uh, for Israel to some extent unilaterally to define its own borders um, for a two state solution, which, which I think de- necessarily would include Jerusalem, uh, and then to, uh, withdraw 
from all the territories that are now occupied territories uh, outside the area that, that Israel has, has defined as its borders, and to help uh, the Palestinians construct a, a, a more a full, fully national kind of Palestinian authority there. I don't, I don't see that that's impossible. That's actually what I favor. I think in an ideal world, I agree with you, Ken. Uh, and so, Tyler, I, mean, I can understand the need. But I, here's where I start to have issue is, is that I'm an, I'm an American citizen in the United States. And so at some point, I have to recognize that it's not the role of my country to force other countries to, to take issues on. And I think sometimes we kind of default to this position of, well, what, what ought the U.S. do to you know, further pick the goal? I am, in general, skeptical of the U.S. attempting to push countries towards particular solutions, even ones I, I may agree with, uh, because it, it rarely ends up happening in positive ways and oftentimes create situations that are, that are negative. As a matter of fact, I think Ken and I, we've talked about that in past shows as well. I know we, we agree and disagree a little bit on that, I think, but uh, so Tyler, yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. Cause I think, I think the U S can uh, play a very constructive role. Obviously in the seventies, president Carter did in fact do the camp David agreement and that, that would never have happened without the U.S. really spearheading it. And that created a lasting peace between Israel and Egypt that has held up to this day. Um, so that was possible. Um, and actually, in, in, in 93, President Clinton um, did the Oslo Accords. Now, that did not succeed in creating a lasting peace. Right, um, right. But, 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 but I still think the effort was worth it. And, and I think the fact that it didn't succeed was contingent. It wasn't pre, preordained. You know, I think there was a chance it could have succeeded. Um, you know, it turned out that it didn't. But I, I don't think we have to interpret that to mean that it, there was no hope. A guaranteed failure. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't think we have to guarantee those failures. But I, I don't see in Israel currently uh, the possibility for a two-state solution being a possibility. And so to attempt to, through some international coercive mechanism make that happen i think is unlikely i guess is 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 what is kind of my response so yeah but the u.s it, it won't happen because the u.s isn't putting any pressure on israel to do it. it 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 could be different if the u.s would put some pressure on israel to do it maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think that i think problematically though is is that the the sides in the conflict want mutually exclusive things uh, and so much like we talked about on the weekend show although we we more or less skirted the content of the issue uh, maybe purposely on my part i don't know you can't both say we're going to have no abortion and all abortion and you can't simultaneously say that you know this this we're going to get all this land or i'm going to get all this land at some point there has to be some kind of potential compromise that could happen, even if there's not a pragmatic one that you could attempt to push forward. And I, I don't see that as being one that is palatable to either side at this juncture. Yeah, I, I, I think that it, it is possible that the answer would be that the, um, the, the 1967 borders, they're not going to be the exact borders because now you've got a much more um, Jewish uh, population living in Jerusalem half of which was outside the 1967 line. But, right. but I think what, what's possible, though, is land swaps for that, right? So that it's it's possible to create a Palestinian state even today where the total square footage of the Palestinian state is quite similar 
to what um, uh, the West Bank was pre-1967. And I, you know, I, I would not think that the um, Israel is going to ever give up Jerusalem, but Israel could give up some farming areas in the north and things like that that are not that populated so that you have um, similar um, uh, quantities of land being swapped. And Israel could actually define unilaterally what that land swap is going to look like. And if they and if they put it on a, on if they put that on the table, and if there was a, a global pressure for both sides to 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 do it, I I don't see that it's impossible even now. Well, you know, you have more optimism on that one than I would have thought, Ken. Uh, so I guess in this particular case, you're going to be the extra optimistic guy, and I'm going to be the pessimistic one. <laughs> um, but let's move forward. Matt writes, "What has been thus far? Do you think the Democratic electoral strategy for winning back their blue wall?" Do they even have a strategy for that at all? Either way, what ought that strategy to be for Democrats? So, Ken, that's a question that maybe you should take on first. What do you think about Matt's question and how do they keep a blue or win back, in the words of Matt, a blue wall? Yeah, well, I I think there is a strategy because um, you've already seen it implemented in the 2018 midterms. Um, Now, sadly, uh, I think Ohio is a different case than the rest of the blue wall. You know, I think Ohio is gone basically. But uh, if you're talking about um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, those states, um, you know, the, the, the Democrats had massive wins in the 2018 midterms, both in Congress and in statewide offices and state government. So um, the strategy that produced it, I guess, was to um, uh, both, um, uh, uh, speak, you know, to labor issues, which are important in those states, um, and also, and you know, working people's issues, uh, and also to um, uh, really um, focus, I think, on on Trump, who is, um, although he has certainly bases in all those states, um, I don't think his bases are the majority in those states, and I think he's a polarizing figure. So um, that seems to me to be the successful strategy that already worked in 2018. The other piece of it, I'll say, is I think that the Republicans actually. Um, they, you know, they were able to get away with some voter suppression when they held the governor's offices in, in those states in, in 2016. And the um, governor's mansions have turned over in Michigan and Wisconsin both. So I think just helping protect the vote is another part of the strategy. And, you know, they were, they were, the numbers were very, very thin across all those states. Trump only won by a total of 70,000 votes. So even little things like voter suppression could actually be dispositive. You know, and Matt, I mean, another part of what I see happening here, maybe in your question, maybe I'm reading too much, is that I think that the voters, Ken, that Trump has explicitly gone after overlap more and more with the voters, say, that the kind of the Bernie Sanders uh, candidates going over uh, I mean, in different policy ways, of course, but in, but in similar kinds of strategies. <clears throat> and I, I think that's one of the things that has continually made more recent elections interesting for me. So maybe inherent in this question is a little bit of this idea is, do you think that Republic or Democrats are going to now have to kind of compete for the working class voters in a way they did not say 30 years ago? Uh, or is that just a hiccup uh, in the Trump era? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, so if you look at Ohio, which is a Trump state, primarily a Republican state now, uh, Sherrod Brown hung on, and he's a very liberal Democrat. 
But I think what you end up seeing in Ohio is that the labor movement people, the the white working class, um, non-college educated men, middle-aged men, that's the core Trump demographic. Um, but they always liked Sherrod Brown and they stuck with him. Um, now, I think in, in Ohio, you can't really do it without appealing to those voters. And so the Sherrod Browns are fairly rare, although some people think that Biden could do that. Um, now, in some of the other states we were talking about, Michigan, um, uh, Pennsylvania, you, you don't really need that, I don't think. It would be helpful to get that. But I think just getting the um, African-American vote, the young people's vote, um, suburban women's votes, things like that, um, th- those states are already a little bluer, right? So you, you don't, you don't, you don't need a dramatic outreach, but I, I do think it's helpful. And I think that, that, you know, if you want to ask the question, why could Sherrod Brown win in Ohio when no other Democrat could win in Ohio? Um, the, then that's the answer because he did get that, that, that kind of, um, Trump Sanders type voter that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, David has a really great question. It was one of the ones that I kind of wanted to talk about on the weekend show, but we didn't have time. Uh, David writes this. He says, quote, I'd like to hear you guys talk about the changes in U.S. energy policy and the, uh, the obliteration of climate change language from governmental sources. Specifically, he mentions, quote, freedom g- gas Really? Uh, To kind of put this in some context, Ken, I don't know how much you saw this, but uh, the United States Department of Energy has begun to referring to fossil fuels, and this is not a joke, listeners, as, quote, molecules of freedom, and natural gas is now called, quote, freedom gas, end quote. So... I'll just admit, I was a little gassy last night, but that's not what we're talking about here. I know you weren't joking when you said that, but I'm not persuaded it's not a joke. I think that maybe whoever (laughs) quoted that, that came up with those phrases at the energy department may have been, uh, you know, really cracking themselves up. Do you think maybe there was an intern, that there was an intern and they said, I bet you no one's going to let us do this. And they went home and and they wrote that in. And then the guy's like, eh, close enough, you know, send it along. You know, it's a long weekend. Lots of things are going on, you know. Uh, (laughs) No, I actually, I looked this up. It, It does. As a matter of fact, uh, you can take a look. It, they do refer to molecules of freedom, molecules of freedom. Uh, so, what, what what about this language? I mean, the the jokingness aside, uh, what do you think about this kind of language shift? Well, I, I think it's a rhetorical strategy on the uh, uh, administration's part to try to. Um, uh, Make it seem as though um, environmental, environmentally friendly policies uh, being advanced by many Democrats um, would be harmful to the economy, would, would um, uh, uh, in some ways limit um, the, the, either the, the freedom or the standard of living that Americans are accustomed to, that the notion, I guess, would be that cheap energy is essential to our standard of living and that uh, protecting the environment would be um, raising the price of energy. Um, so I think that's the concept behind that kind of language. I, I don't believe any of that on the merits. I think you, you could easily have much cleaner policies that are also much greener policies. Um, it seems to me like coal is barely economic anymore, um, and it's the dirtiest fuel. Uh, so you know the idea that the dirtiest uh, fuels are going to somehow be cheaper, um, I, I don't see any evidence for that. Uh, yeah, I, this is this is this is one where I fall, and we, you know, uh, Ken and I have talked about this before, uh, David. I, I don't fall in line with the the typical conservative position. Uh, I think climate change is a real thing, and I think that the attempt 
to manipulate and ban language. It happened in Florida uh, when then Governor Scott didn't want mentions of climate change, again, in a state where uh, it's getting affected rather rapidly uh, by climate change. Uh, These are just maybe more silly or laughable ways of of trying to conceal a a straightforward uh, scientific truth. Now, but here's the thing I will say, I don't think this is going to go over well, but David, I, I think in general, the use of language to bolster one's argument happens all the time. So this is not particularly weird other than it's maybe a laughably absurd form of the of the position, right? Uh, we often attempt to use language in ways that benefits our position over others. As a matter of fact, um, one of my good friends and myself in graduate school wrote a paper once uh, called The Nomenclature of War, where we argued specifically uh, that the names of conflicts helped us understand uh, what the intention were. In other words, that the names of wars were designed in the contemporary era to benefit certain people over other people uh, and to bolster certain arguments over other arguments. And, and I don't think that just happens in wars. I think that happens in here. I think that freedom gas is just is bad branding on that yeah. front. Uh, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe like Apple coming out and being like, we have, you know, amazing glass. I just don't think that's going to be a, a, a great term for you know, their iPhones. Um, yep. Pro- propaganda but, only works if it doesn't sound like propaganda. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, effective slick advertising only works if you don't realize that that's what's happening to you. Um, right. Or you're at least willing to go along with it because it makes you feel some um, positive particular way. And I don't think freedom molecules are going to be the one that does that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I will say in this case, I also think you know, it, it, it's, it's the wrong thing to be working on. But besides that, I don't think this is weird as a typology. It's just weird in, in, a, in the form that we're looking at it in. Um, any other thoughts you have on that, Ken, before we move on to another question? R- reminded me of Freedom Fries. That was all. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> that you say that because Forbes brought that up, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a- another question that we have for this week is from Oscar. Oscar writes, Robert Mueller in his statement repeated the fact he could not have charged the president no matter what due to the DOJ guidelines. He went on to say that it would also be unconstitutional. So which one is it? Unconstitutional? DOJ policy? Or both? And how much could that rule protect Donald Trump? You're telling me that if he went on live TV and shot Sleepy Joe, nothing could be done immediately because he's president? I'm, that's an inflection. I'm assuming that's how you meant that, Oscar. Uh, so, Ken, uh, it, what do you think about Oscar's question? We talked a little bit about this on the weekend show, Oscar, uh, but let's kind of maybe give you the bare bones uh, here for our question show. So, Ken? Yeah, I think uh, Robert Mueller was actually quoting the Justice Department policy. So I don't I don't know that he purported to independently evaluate whether it would be uh, would or wouldn't be unconstitutional to um, indict a sitting president. I think he just simply said, that the Justice Department has a policy that says it would be unconstitutional to indict a sitting president and that he, as a Justice Department official, uh, abided by that policy. I I don't think he said that he took a deep dive into it. The one thing that um, I keep wondering um, is if the New York Attorney General, who is not at all bound by that Justice Department policy because the New York State Attorney General's office is not part of the U.S. Justice Department, um, if she does indict uh, Trump for any of the Trump organization um, uh, matters that she's looking into, 
That might finally give us a, an actual court uh, ruling on the issue of whether a sitting president can be indicted, um, because the, no federal official is going to do it because of that Justice Department policy, which prohibits federal officials from doing it. But um, but that doesn't stop a state official from doing it. Well, and one of the things that's worth remembering is is that most of your statutory kind of criminal law is state level, not federal level. Um, so maybe, let's maybe even let's take that to his question, right? Because if you shoot somebody, we're talking about state law in general. Uh, so what about his second question here, where if he, I think it's funny, he's calling him Sleepy yeah. Joe. Uh, yeah. but, so what, what if they, like, what if, what if it is Trump versus uh, Joe Biden and at the debates, uh, you know, Trump gets a little upset and, uh, and pops, Pops, yeah. uh, pops Biden one in the chest. Uh, yeah, that, that's really the what's same the deal? issue. Yeah, that's the same issue that I was talking about with the New York Attorney General. So what you'd expect to happen then would be that the local police and the local prosecutors presumably would want to make an arrest for the local crime. Maybe they'd get an indictment. Um, and, uh, and then the president would go to court, to that local court, and say, well, I'm sitting president and I, I, I'm immune from indictment as long as I'm still the sitting president. Um, now, at a minimum, um, you know, you'd be able to get a sealed indictment that um, would open up after he's no longer the sitting president. But I think it would probably be litigated. I, I don't think, you know, I don't see any reason uh, immediately why any state court, and this would come up through a state court system, would consider that Justice Department policy to be either persuasive or binding. So I think the, the issue would have to be fully and fairly litigated. There are arguments on both sides. We, we talked about some of those arguments on the Saturday show. Um, but uh, but I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, in many states where Trump isn't popular, I don't think that a, a state uh, prosecutor or state attorney general would feel that that policy stands in the way of them bringing an indictment. So the question would therefore be, um, you know, what would what would the state court do about it? And then in the final analysis, what would the U.S. Supreme Court do about it? And I, that's the, probably not one that we can uh, answer for you, Oscar, other than to say it'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, we'll have to wait and see if Trump decides to shoot somebody on live television uh, no. <laughs> well, or, 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 or if he or if he decides to run a fraudulent uh, business corporation in New York, because he, he is being investigated for that, right? right? We could see we could see indictments there, and that's probably the more serious, less laughable version of your question, and um, and and that would be something that could come up. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Uh, Ken Alex writes, I'd be curious as to how much economic power a president really has. I've had conflicting reports through my poli-sci classes I've taken. How much influence do they have over things like the stock market, jobs, wages, growth, etc.? What do you want to say to Alex, Ken? Boy, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, Just a little they, question. Yeah, it's a big <laughs> question. They may have a lot more um, uh, ability to sabotage the economy than to, um, than, than to really do great things for the economy, although... To the extent that they have influence over Congress as well, I think a, a president and a Congress working hand in hand um, can do a lot uh, for the economy. Um, the president unilaterally probably has a, not as many tools to do that. Um, but um, I guess, it, you know, the stock market, um, you know, the, the president can do things that harm particular industries and that would affect the value of their stock. Uh, I don't know that he can affect the value of the whole stock market, although if he does things like start wars, that could affect the value of the whole stock market, I guess. Yeah. In, in political science in general, Alex, there are 
there's two views of how much president economic power presidents have kind of an expansionist view and a more minimal view. And, and in all honesty, what determines where you fall into those two camps, it's not so much that there's a disagreement about what presidents can do as about what kinds of economic outcomes are important, short term or long term economic abilities. So one of the things that I'd have to kind of follow up with you is to say, so when you're talking about stock market jobs and wages, do you mean later this year? Do you mean in two years? Or do you mean in 15 years? Uh, because, of course, presidents, as part of the system of Congress, uh, system making laws with Congress, as Ken was talking about, can affect and shape a lot of economic policy. However, those kinds of changes rarely have short term uh, impacts on the economic circumstances surrounding, say, the job markets or how many how many people have jobs. So, for example, a lot of the benefits of the 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 the, the interaction between President Clinton and a Republican Congress uh, was felt later, not so much during uh, Clinton's terms in office. So, uh, really, that debate is about what, how how long term are we looking at for the president? Now, on the short term, I think a lot there's a lot of agreement that it's more in the communication of what presidents are doing that can have effect on a stock market. So, for instance, uh, are you gonna are you gonna threaten to have trade wars with people? Well, that's gonna have short term uh, impacts on the stock market. And, uh, but now, is that a is a is that gonna be a long term trading trend or not? Depends on well, what actually gets followed up with by that and uh, that brings us back to whether it's a short or a long term um economic that you're interested in so i think the reason you've probably heard differing reports uh is because whichever classes you're in you're probably taking a look at different ways in which the president might affect um different variable outcomes and they might either be short term or long term anything you want to add to that ken or yeah, I mean, maybe the only thing I would add, I agree with all that you said, is that I, I would say that the, you know, looking, not not focusing narrowly on the U.S. president, but looking more broadly at the question of systems of government, systems of government have a huge impact on the economy, right? So if you ask the question, why is the United States a rich country and North Korea a poor country? Um, you know, I think a large part of the answer comes from the system of government that we have versus the system of government that they have. So, so, so I wouldn't look at it as though, well, you know, politics and government don't don't aren't the driving factor. They can be the driving factor, but I, but I would just say it's more um, within our system the the role that the president actually plays. Um, it, it's 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 more circumscribed and more constrained, and our economy is giant and diverse, so um, it's a little more robust, also. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ken. And I think this this is probably the answer to many questions when you start getting down to, you know, how much power does an individual congressperson have? How much power does an individual uh, president have? And that's that in our particular system of government, we purposefully are constraining everyone in a, in a variety of ways. And so anytime you're trying to ask, okay, what caused pick your outcome variable? It's a complicated answer because you have states that are involved with their own systems. You have a national government where we have a separation of powers with constraints and checks on each of those. And so it's always going to be a uh, a tempered response simply because that's, as, you, as Ken, as you were pointing out, that's the system of government that we have in the, in the United States and on purpose. Yeah. 
So if that helps a little bit, Alex, I hope that it does. Uh, so I think we still have some time for another question. So we have time for one more question. And so, Ken, let's turn to Joe. Joe asks, what are your thoughts about how you cope with running a bipartisan show in a, such a polarized country? What can be done within the party structure to give more power to the moderate voices inside of both parties? Wow, there's kind of like two questions there. So maybe why don't we start with the what can be done with the party structures to give power to more moderate voices inside the parties? And, or is there even a way to do that, Ken? I think the number one way to do that is by um, reforming gerrymandering. I think all all of the polarization you see or the biggest share of it is because of gerrymandering. Because if if you had competitive districts, then the way to win competitive districts is going to be by appealing to the center. Um, but as long as most of Congress is drawn into non-competitive districts, then the way to win is, you know, most, most Congress members are running in districts where the only serious election is their own primary election, not the general election. Um, and so they're, they usually are going to, Republicans are going to run to their right and uh, Democrats are going to run to their left. Um, so I, yeah, that, that would be my advice. It's not something within the party system. It's within the system of how we vote. Mm -hmm. Well, as a matter of fact, in political science, we have what's called the median, uh, the median voter theory. And Joe, what that suggests is, is when you have a competitive district, as Ken talks about, what inevitably happens is that both the left and the right have to try to capture the median voter in order to win. Uh, and they will be willing to do that because they recognize that their respective political base isn't going to abandon them for the other side, even if that difference is rather small once they start going for that median average voter. Uh, and, and what Ken's suggesting here is, is that uh, in if if you have gerrymandered districts, then there is no reason to reach for the median voter, and therefore you will attempt to uh, simply secure your base because there's no reason to to moderate into the center. Now, Ken, I will say, maybe in support of Joe's question a little bit here, is that won't both sides, it is advantageous to them to want to have non-competitive elections. That's generally why many uh, institutions, or excuse me, uh, organizations that support uh, uh, less gerrymandering are oftentimes hindered because even, let's say you're in a, you're in a situation where you could, might have five competitive districts or you could have four Republicans and one Democrat. If you're the Democrat, you'd still prefer that system to having to pour money into five or vice versa if you're a Republican. So doesn't her question still stand a little bit here in the sense that what would be the impetus for parties to want to give up uh, the the desire for having safe, less expensive, effectively gerrymandered seats? Well, uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're, it's it's true what you're saying that um, the parties that are in control because of gerrymandering usually don't want to end that. But um, I think some of the mechanisms we've seen in the country um, you know, sometimes there's litigation, and so courts will do it. Uh, sometimes there's um, voter uh, ballot initiatives. Often those ballot, voter ballot initiatives are supported by the party that's um, not benefiting from the gerrymander, right? So that they can they'll they'll put the effort into collecting signatures and getting something on a ballot. Um, now here in Ohio, we had the kind of unique situation. Um, I think it's unique. I'm not sure about in other states, but uh, Governor Kasich, who's you know not in office anymore, but while he was a Republican governor. 
with a very gerrymandered uh, Republican legislature that, in you know, from all appearances, that's all to his benefit. Um, he actually was very concerned about the problem that gerrymandering was making the um, the, the 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 Republican legislature of Ohio move much farther to the right than where he wanted to be or where he thought the median voter in Ohio was. And he supported uh, gerrymandering reform, which ended up passing, although it won't take effect until after the next 2020 census. Um, but as, as a dominant Republican governor in a Republican state with a gerrymandered Republican legislature, um, Kasich wanted that. Uh, he worked against that while he was still in office uh, because he thought that it was producing a, a dysfunctional uh, government. Um, because of the kind of partisan polarization and divisiveness that the questioner was really asking. So that sometimes can happen under ordinary political conditions like that. But I think probably the the more um, more common mechanisms for working on this issue would be through um, state state uh, voter initiative and referendum or or through litigation. Well, Ken, it's always interesting, and I hope, listeners, that you've enjoyed uh, some of our answers to your questions. Ken, I hope you enjoyed being back on the show and taking them all on. Yeah, it was great. Well, before we head out, I want to mention uh, that Michael is actually currently teaching a dystopian politics and film course, and that every week he's going to be posting commentary on that week's films for all of our Patreon supporters on our Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash politics guys last week michael talked about planet of the apes and escape from new york that was really cool i mentioned that on the weekend show uh and this week he's going to be taking a look at blade runner and robocop uh and so if you're interested in this and you want to get some of these additional benefits or you'd like to be able to get the bonus show this past week as uh, ken and i both mentioned we talked about israeli politics on the bonus show what you need to do is head to patreon.com slash politics guys or to politicsguys.com slash support. And by becoming a Patreon supporter, you're going to get access to things like Michael's dystopian politics films and Ken and I's bonus show on the Israeli politics or whatever the next topic is for this upcoming week. I really do hope that you'll become a Patreon supporter of the Politics Guys. In the meantime, the executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Trey Warndorf. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.